are going to be in First Peter. Uh, just before we get to that, uh, I have uh, a bit of an update for you, a COVID update. Uh, we've had a few questions uh, about kind of where we are as a church. Have protocols changed? Are they the same? What you know, what's going on? So we had our elder meeting this past week, talked a bit about it, and the elders asked that I bring a bit of an update to you. Uh, our policy uh, throughout the pandemic has basically been to go along with the health orders, uh, according to the BC Public Health Authority, un unless or until it uh, contravenes any direct biblical instruction. Uh, so for example, uh, health orders uh, for churches around masks right now, that they are recommended uh, in the church for everyone over 12, especially those who have not been vaccinated. So that's our, that's our recommendation. You'll see signs up to that effect. The recommendation means that it's still a personal choice, but we're recommending it for the sake of safety, for the sake of love. We really do want as many people as possible to feel comfortable gathering physically uh, as a church on Sundays. If we've learned anything from this past year, it's that it's, it's not a good thing for us to be apart. And so we're looking for ways to make sure that everyone can come or as many people as possible, feeling safe, feeling comfortable. So there's a few other things we want to make you aware of. Uh, starting today, we have a fireside room in, in the back corner. I'm not sure if you've seen it there. Uh, we've had a video simulcast on there since we've been meeting in person, but we're going to make that a mask mandatory zone. We want to provide a space for those who just feel more comfortable knowing that everyone's going to have a mask. Um, and so if you're here or if you're watching at home and you haven't felt comfortable coming, we're hoping that that will be a good space for you. You can enter through the building or from the outside, whatever you like. You'll just know that in there uh, it's way more uh, you know, physically distant and, uh, and perhaps you can take advantage of that. Uh, another thing that you might not realize is um, this, this room is actually equipped with a very powerful air exchanger. Um, we installed it a few years ago before the pandemic just because we wanted more ventilation. But what it, what it does is it actually uh, circulates the air or takes all the air out every 15 minutes or so. So if you're feeling like, man, this room seems very stuffy, there's no windows, just know that somehow, I think it's above me, it's, it's sucking air out and that might make you feel more comfortable. Uh, also, of course, <clears throat> by now we, we know uh, the drill. If you have any COVID-like symptoms, we're asking that you, that you stay home. So that's kind of where we're at. Not a lot has changed, but wanted to make some, some other points of emphasis. The last thing that I want to say is something uh, that I'm going to be saying, uh, I think, over and over again for us as a church is, is that we know, we all know, that there are a lot of different opinions and convictions about issues related to COVID. Uh, that means that this really has become a test of faith and a test of unity for us as a church. If you call Tri-City Church home or another church home, that's become that sort of an issue. So our call as Christians is to always see everything in light of eternity and the cross, which means that we're, we're always to be pursuing faith and love. And this shapes the way that we see everything, shapes how we see a crisis like this, shapes how we interact with the people in our lives. So let me just say this to you. The, the greatest threat from COVID is not actually death. I know it's a possibility. I know that's a, it's a, it's a real thing. There's people in our congregation that have uh, neighbors or friends that have, uh, are suffering from COVID, of, of death. We need to, as Christians, enter into that space with real humility, tenderness, compassion, absolutely. But here's what I mean. The greatest threat in any health emergency is not actually the physical death. The, the greatest threat, like in a heart attack, with cancer, with any of the life-threatening diseases, is really an issue of faith. That those who have faith might not lose it, or that those who don't have faith might come to faith so that they have an eternity of hope, even if, they, even if they die. As Christians, we recognize there are 
greater hopes than simply the hope of physical life. And so our concern as elders, first and foremost, is for the spiritual health of our people, the spiritual health of, of our community, and as our unity as a church. Uh, so what this means is that it's a call to love, a call to really be gracious with each other. It's going to be tempting when we know there are people who disagree with us to, to start thinking ill of them, start thinking that they are unloving or, or fearful or lack faith. So let me just say, it's not a win if we get to the end of this or even partway through this and we're physically healthy, but we've become hard-hearted towards each other. It's not a win. It's, it's not a win if we get to the end of this and we've fought for religious freedom, but we've developed seeds of bitterness towards each other in the church. It's not a win because when that happens, when we don't have love for each other, it totally stalls our mission. Our mission is to share the love of Jesus with others. We can't do that if we're not loving towards each other. So that means that we are called to really submit to each other, serve each other in very practical ways. And uh, I want to read for you Romans 12, 9 and 10, uh, just to remind us of what we're called to. Uh, that, those verses say this, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That, that's our call. That we would look to find ways to, to bless each other, serve each other, care for each other, not thinking of what we think is necessarily the best or makes us feel comfortable, what someone else would feel comfortable. I'm going to pray for that for us as a church. I would say, uh, if you have questions about this, uh, we welcome them. Please feel free to email me or, better yet, you can email one of the other elders. Uh, their emails are all on the website under team. You can find us all there. Uh, we would be happy to engage with you more about this. But let me pray for us about this and then about um, the text we have this morning. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that, uh, that you are sovereign, that you are in control over all things, Lord. In a situation like this where there is so much that, are out of, that is out of our control, uh, so many uh, things about this, we're not quite sure what is necessarily the best thing to do, perhaps, in any given moment. You, you tell us that we can pray to you for wisdom, you will give it. Uh, Lord, you say that we can trust you, that you are indeed sovereign. We, we believe that. And I pray that uh, really those, um, those two things, the, the issue of eternity and, Lord, our call to love each other would, would really guide us, especially as a church. Lord, we, we hope that people around us would see just the way, that, how gracious we are to each other, how we serve each other, and that they might one day glorify your name. And so we pray, please, that you would help us in that. And right now, please speak to us through your word, encourage us, convict us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Uh, one thing I'll say, just before we get into it, is I really would encourage you to read ahead uh, each week if you're going to be gathering with us regularly. Uh, we will send out the passage in our weekly update each week. You can look at that. It's really helpful to be reading the passage of Scripture that we're going to uh, hear preached and then uh, receive you know, what the Holy Spirit is going to lay on our hearts. Uh, in community groups, a lot of us are going to be sort of organizing things that way so that we're it's, it's almost like tilling the soil of our heart, and then we're, we're ready for what God has for us. So um, uh, take advantage of that if you can. Uh, the title for our series <clears throat> is A Living Hope. Uh, it's taken directly from our text this morning. And I want to begin by thinking about this issue of hope. I want to think about the importance, the power of hope. Hope really is about the future. It's, it's, it's the conviction or the reason or the belief that even if things are not great right now, they're going to get better in the future. That's, that's hope. 
And hope can be a very powerful thing. Uh, there's lots of examples of it, but one I came across recently uh, in a Christianity Today article was about a group of uh, young women, girls at the time, uh, in Nigeria in 2014. I'm not sure if you remember this, but they, they, were, they were kidnapped. They were, it was an all-girls school. Uh, there were these uh, Muslim militants, uh, this group called Boko Haram. They showed up one evening uh, with, with trucks and with guns, and they forced 300 of these girls into the trucks and drove them deep into, into the jungle. It was just totally shocking. Everyone in the community was outraged uh, in the country. In fact, throughout the world, people heard about this because uh, someone coined the hashtag, bring back our girls. And that was, for a moment at least, on everyone's screens. Everyone was thinking about it. They were really trying to, to figure out what happened to these young women, but they couldn't. It took three years for these women to be released, finally. And when they were, uh, two journalists from the Wall Street Journal, uh, Joe Parkinson and Drew Hinshaw, they interviewed 20 of these girls to try to find out how did they survive? How did they you know, make it through those, those three years? And so I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts. Uh, they write this. As we interviewed some 20 of the young women, we discovered something about the beating heart of this story that much of the foreign press coverage had missed. We saw clearly how the teenagers' will to survive was inseparable from their religious convictions. Most of the students were Christians. These young women had endured three years of captivity, deprivation, and pressure to convert to Boko Haram's creed by holding on to their friendships and their faith. At the risk of beatings and torture, they whispered prayers together at night or into cups of water. They memorized the book of Job from a smuggled Bible. Into secret diaries, they copied Luke 2 because they saw themselves in Mary's ordeal of giving birth to Jesus. Their faith provided twin anchors of identity and hope during a period when their captors were trying to erase both. See, 1 Peter is primarily a letter about hope. It's written to a group of Christians that have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor at the time because of persecution. And it, too, is trying to root that hope in faith. If you remember last week, we saw that Peter, uh, in writing to this group, these churches, he called them elect exiles. Elect exiles, which means they're chosen, loved by God, but still living far away from home and in a hostile world. So this letter is Peter's attempt to remind them of the hope that they have and to encourage them to hold on to their faith in Christ. This is something that every Christian needs, this kind of reminder. We need this kind of reminder. We're, we're not persecuted in that way. We're, we have been kidnapped. We're not under that kind of duress. But the world around us is hostile. It's difficult for us to try to live a life that honors Jesus in this world. So we all need hope. We, we need a hope that will sustain us, a hope that will lift us up through the trials of life. And Peter reminds us of what this hope is by going directly to the source. He begins with the mercy of God. And so that's what we find in the beginning of our text. I'm going to read our text all the way through, just a few verses. Uh, starting in verse 3, here's God's word to us this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's God's word. Um, we're going to do things a little different this morning. Instead of kind of three points or two points, uh, you know, guiding our way through the passage, uh, we're going to use a timeline. 
uh, a timeline of the flow of thought and theology and really the argument that Peter is making for why these Christians, why we should have hope. Because what he actually does in this passage is he looks at the past, present, and future. So here's what the timeline is going to look like, past, present, and, and future. And it's going to be very visual. It's going to be great. Unless you're listening to the podcast, then you have to imagine what I'm showing you. But for the rest of us, I think it'll be helpful. So here's what we see, first of all, in this passage. First thing in the sequence is that we were dead in our sins. Now, I know this isn't mentioned specifically in the passage, but I think it's clearly implied because um, if God needs to show us mercy, then we definitely have done something wrong. Uh, we, we've sinned against him, and so we need mercy. And original sin is something that is uh, made very clear throughout, throughout the Bible, very clear in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, this is what it says in Ephesians 2, speaking to a group of Christians, Paul speaking and saying this, uh, 2 verse 1, and you were dead, like before faith, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is where all human beings uh, begin. Now, Peter doesn't really emphasize this. He doesn't linger here at all. And that's because he's writing to a group of Christians who should know what they have been saved from. But let me just say, if you are unclear about the problem of sin, then you will always be cut off from the hope of God. You will always be cut off from lasting hope in your life because to be in sin means to be spiritually dead. This is the epitome of hopelessness according to the Bible because when you're, when you're dead, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. In fact, our sin, um, it's kind of like quicksand. It's like quicksand for the soul. The, the more that we think that we are working our way to righteousness or goodness or some favor with God, the more that we're slipping farther and farther into pride and self-focus and, and greater and greater sin. What we really need as human beings is an external source of hope, something beyond ourselves, which is exactly what Peter points us to in verse 3. So in verse 3, uh, we actually get three, the next three parts of his argument. So I'm going to read it all, and then we'll, we'll plot it out. Here's what he says again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I'm going to put it in chronological order. Uh, after being dead in sin, the next thing that happens is God's attitude towards us, God's mercy. Uh, he doesn't condemn us in our sin, although he would be just in doing that. His disposition towards sinful humanity is his kindness and love and grace. And he does that by providing an answer for the sin that plagues us. And that's the, the third thing in the sequence, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because the cross, the cross is where we see the mercy of God on full display. It's the absolute center of Christian hope. Because as Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, that meant then that death is no longer absolute. Death has been, has been conquered. Sin is no longer bad news in our lives. It's not the problem anymore. It's been paid for. And so the cross opens the door to genuine hope for humanity for the first time since the Garden of Eden. But here's the thing we need to be clear about. This is not a hope that is generally applied. It's not universally applied to all of humanity. It needs to be specifically applied to us as individuals. Which brings us to the linchpin of Peter's argument for hope. 
that the thing that is absolutely essential for us to have the hope of God in our lives. He reminds his audience that if they are Christians, they have been born again. That's the language he uses, born again. To be born again uh, is a spiritual term. Uh, Just as physical birth produces a new physical person, like a little baby, a spiritual birth produces a new person, a Christian. that's, That's what happens. You're still you, but by the power of the Spirit of God, you're made new in Christ. Yeah, a new nature, new identity, new attitudes, new interests, new life. This, this, um, the theological term for this is uh, regeneration. That's what it means. To be regenerate means to be spiritually alive. And Jesus spoke about this when he was here on earth. If you remember, um, Nicodemus, the spiritual leader of Israel, came to talk to Jesus about his ministry, wanted to find out what this was all about. And Jesus famously says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying very clearly, this is the thing that ushers the hope and the power of God into our lives. And this reminds us that Christianity is different than every other religion. Because in every other religion, uh, what you are to do is to work hard enough, be good enough so that God might bless you. Uh, You need to attain some level of enlightenment, some spiritual purity. You need to do a lot of things. And then the hope is that maybe God will show kindness or grace or he'll do something good in your lives. Christianity rightly recognizes that we, we don't have the capacity for that. We can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough. And so Jesus did it all for us. He earned it all for us. That's why he didn't just come and go right to the cross. He came and lived a life of obedience, earning our righteousness. Then he went to the cross to pay for our sins. And it's a gift now that is something just we need to receive. That's the wondrous thing about the gospel, that it doesn't require work on our part. We need simply to receive it by faith. And that really is the question that the Bible comes back to again and again. If you're you're not a, a person of faith, if you're not a Christian, the Bible will will constantly push to ask that question. Well, why not? What is it? What is it that um, is is hindering your faith? That's a question that as a church, we should be asking those around us, uh, making clear the gospel, the gift that is to be offered, and then asking, why is it that you would not believe? Are you not clear on sin? Are you not clear on, on who Jesus is? Because the new life that comes through being born again is a reason for celebration, I mean, new life itself, physical life, is always a reason for celebration. Uh, what you'll notice if you gather with us uh, for any length of time is that we, we always celebrate babies being born. In fact, a new baby was born, and I saved the baby. That sounds wrong. But to this day, so uh, Jesse and Jenna had a new baby girl. This is back in August. But here she is, um, Avaya Alicia. Uh, we usually celebrate, right? Praise God. The new baby is being born. Exciting. They're not here with us, but maybe they're watching online. We're excited for you, and and that's right, to celebrate new life. Last week, we had baptisms, a celebration of new spiritual life. The baptism isn't the point at which people are reborn. It's not magic water where you're dead, now you're alive. It's a symbol of what Jesus, what, what the Spirit of Jesus has already done in us, made us alive, born again from death to life. We celebrate because it means that everything is new. Everything has changed. There's lots more that could be said about what it means to be alive in Christ. In fact, uh, we did a sermon series on it uh, last Easter. Uh, You'd be welcome to go back and listen. But for today, today the point is this. To be born again is to be born to a living hope. 
That's the fifth thing. A living hope, an eternal hope for the future, a certain hope of one day seeing Jesus face to face, a joyful hope that God loves us and is working for our good and a needed hope that Satan, sin, and death can, can no longer hold us down. No longer are we in bondage to them. So if you're a Christian, this hopefully is not news to you. Uh, it would not have been news to um, the audience that Peter is writing to. And so you, you might wonder why, and why is he telling them all of this if they know this? If this is really the essence of faith and that they're people of faith, why would he tell them this again? And the answer, of course, is because even though we all who are Christians know that this is true, they were still in exile. We, we are still in exile, far from home, far from heaven. And we know that the glories of the new birth, they can easily grow dim with the difficulties and the trials of life. That's the challenge, to remember that all of this is true of us, to, to find hope in it. So what Peter does is he reminds them. He reminds them of what God has done for them in the past. We see that, that's why I got the timeline. What God has done for them in the past he reminds them of what they have in the present and he reminds them of what they have to look forward to in the future. That, that's the next part. He's saying, this happened, you God did this. This is your living hope right now and it's leading to the future, to an inheritance that is waiting for you at the end of your time here on earth. A heavenly inheritance. We see this in verse four. Verse four says, we are born to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. So linked to the living hope that we have in Christ is a rich inheritance from God waiting for us in heaven. It's just like an earthly inheritance. It's, it's gifts that are to be received when someone dies. But in this case, we aren't waiting for a parent to die or a grandparent to die. That sounds a little bit wrong. We're not like waiting for them to die. Like, but we're just saying that's what happens. And they have to die first. So it's not, but it's different. It's not someone else. We are waiting for us to die. When we die, then as a Christian, our full inheritance will be revealed. But in the meantime, these future gifts are meant to encourage us, to bring us comfort, to bring us hope. Just like if there's a son or a daughter who's going to inherit the family business, a family farm or something like that. It's a hope for the future, but it, it also motivates them to work hard in the present. That's the dynamic of this heavenly inheritance. And what you'll notice is that Peter isn't just reminding us that we have a heavenly inheritance. He's also emphasizing how much better this gift is than anything in this world. And he does that through those words. He gives three um, Really fascinating words, interesting words. We're going to go through them to see um, the, the nature of this gift, this inheritance that is waiting for us. So the first word that he uses is that it's imperishable. It's imperishable. Uh, the future gifts of God uh, cannot be destroyed, will not die, cannot perish. This includes, uh, by the way, the life within you. You can think of it this way. As Christians... The life that we have in us means that we will outlive everything around us. Everything that we see, like the world as we know it will perish, we will not perish. We, we will not be gone. We will, we will die, but we will be alive in Christ. We will have a glorified body. There, there's, there's more to come. Because we are in Jesus, who is resurrected from the dead, we, we will not perish, and the gifts of God will not perish either. The, this sounds, I think, maybe a bit... 
theological or almost like mystical, like, okay, it's great, we're not gonna perish, but it has some really practical implications. What this means is that even the greatest losses of our lives are, are never permanent. So we, we can lose a lot of things in this life. We can lose businesses, we can lose wealth, we can lose relationships, we can lose our health. One of the most devastating things I think that we can lose is our, is our minds. Uh, we have a few people close to us who have parents that are, that are struggling with dementia and with, with Alzheimer's, and those mental illnesses are so devastating in part, I think, because it seems to be a very loss of the, of the self. Like those we love are still there in their bodies, but, but they seem to be gone. All their experiences in life, all the connections they have with those they love, all their uniqueness as individuals, it seems to be slipping away into this abyss of, of mental illness. And what we, need, we can be reminded of, we should be reminded of, is that in Christ, even a loss as great as that is only temporary. It's a momentary affliction. Painful, yes. I, I, do we need to enter into those situations with, with people and mourn with them? Yes. Weep with them? Yes, of course. Bring comfort? Yes. But, but what this is telling us is that even that is not a reason for ultimate despair. Because one day, all those who are in Christ will wake up in heaven with all of their faculties restored. Physical faculties restored. Mental faculties restored. That is the hope that all of us have. The heavenly inheritance tells us that the darkness and brokenness of this world cannot destroy us, cannot destroy our soul, cannot destroy the gifts that we have been given. Our hope is imperishable because we are in Christ and he is risen. He is alive. That's just the first thing. Second thing, this inheritance we have is undefiled. To defile something means to spoil it or to ruin its purity. Uh, right now, we live in a very defiled world. Uh, everywhere we look, uh, innocence and goodness and purity, uh, all the things that God has made in the world at the beginning is, is gone. It's being ruined by sin over and over and over again. It's so common that really the world barely notices anymore. Or if they do, if they get a sense that something is morally wrong, they tend to attribute it to like systems or institutions or organizations or corporations. But the Bible, the Bible gets right to the source. What the Bible says is that when it comes down to the defilement of the world around us, we all have dirty hands. We are all responsible as human beings because we are in sin. In fact, there's a scene uh, that, that popped into my mind when I was thinking about this back in the Old Testament. Kind of a shocking uh, scene that, that describes the sense of defilement of humanity. Uh, it's back in 2 Samuel uh, this is just after David has become king, just after he's defeated all of the Philistines, all the enemies of the people of God, and he wants to celebrate, and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, into Jerusalem. That's, that's what this is. Remember, Indiana Jones was searching for this? So this golden box, uh, this was uh, the most significant artifact for the people of God. It was all inlaid with gold, and it symbolized the glory and the presence of God. And so they're bringing it now to the new capital. They're rejoicing. They're, they're singing. And things seem to be going very, very well and, until they go very badly, especially for a guy named Uzzah. Uh, let me read it to you. Here's 2 Samuel chapter 6. And David 
And all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David was confused. God, why, why did you kill Uzzah? What did he do that was so wrong? I mean, this was... I mean, this was the most precious artifact that they had, all inlaid with gold inside were actually the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the staff of Aaron that had budded. Wasn't it a good thing for him to stop this beautiful thing from falling into the dirt? I mean, that was his concern, right? That's a good concern. This, this beautiful artifact of God going to get all dirty and muddy? It was, it was the right concern, but there was, there was something, a, a huge misunderstanding. The huge misunderstanding was that if he really wanted to keep the Ark of the Covenant of God clean, then he should not have touched it with his hand. Because his hand was far more filthy than any dirt or mud on the ground because it was connected to a heart and a mind and a soul that was sinful, that was disobedient to the Lord. That means that there was a moral filth in his nature. Listen, they could have been crossing a cesspool of toxic waste and it still would have been cleaner for that ark to fall into it than for a human being to touch the holy ark of God. That's what it means to be defiled. That's our sin as human beings. We don't honor God as we should. And so we are defiled. Everything we touch is defiled. We see reminders of this every day all, all around us in our, in our world. I was watching the, on the news this week the, the gymnasts, the women testifying again about their abuse at the hand of, of Larry Nasser. And it's just devastating. Those poor girls were defiled by that man and then went to others for help and they ignored them. They didn't handle things properly. The whole, the whole thing is, is devastating. Let me ask you, what hope do you think we have in a world where medical professionals use their position to sexually assault young girls? Like, what, what hope do we have in a world where men will come with guns and trucks and take 300 young girls often into the jungle? What hope do we have in a world that is defiled? See, it should be really clear to us that genuine hope cannot come from human hands. They're too dirty. They're unclean. It's only the pure hands of Christ that can bring hope into this world. He is the one who can bring the hope that we need. And, and he, he can organize and orchestrate a reality which is untainted and undefiled for all of eternity. And he does it beginning in us. He, the new birth in us means that now we are cleansed from all of, our, all of our moral wrong, all of our sin. By the grace of God, through the atonement of Christ. And then it continues the work of the Spirit of God in us, the sanctification or if you're a Christian, you're constantly seeing your sin more clearly, repenting, turning away from it, growing in godliness, and it all culminates in a heavenly kingdom of purity, which will remain undefiled forever. I'm not sure about you, it, it's difficult for me to imagine what an undefiled world would be like. But I think that's part of why Peter includes it here. What I think he's, he's wanting us to do is to spend more time thinking about, contemplating the glories of heaven, the purity of heaven, then putting our minds into the defilement around us. 
This I found very convicting this week as I was thinking about it. What I was thinking is that hope really is what you put in your mind. And the things that we watch or listen to or, or read, they very often don't lead to hope. They, they lead further into the things of this world. But as we, as we meditate on, as we read all that Jesus has done in us and then what he's going to do for us, it, it will genuinely lift us up out of the defilement of this world into the glories of Christ. That's the second thing. The third is this, that our inheritance is unfading. This one is shorter and, and cool. I get to talk to you about thermodynamics, um, which if I understand it correctly, and I really think I do, because I did a lot of Googling, I did a lot of YouTube watching, so I'm pretty sure I got it nailed. Um, the second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy, uh, which is basically saying, I think, that the universe is, is slowly kind of falling apart. Um, bodies, bridges, solar systems, given enough time, it all becomes more and more disordered, kind of degenerates. Uh, here's what uh, Stephen Hawking said. He said, the increase of disorder or entropy is what distinguishes the past from the future, giving a direction to time. So what he's saying is the way that you know you're going forward into the future is that things are getting more and more disordered. As we go forward in time, things are falling apart even more. We can see this around us. Our, our homes, um, they don't remain solid and strong, right? If we do nothing, they, things fall apart. We have to maintain them. Same thing with our bodies, right? They, they tend to fall apart. Things get worse. In this universe, um, this fallen universe, nothing lasts. And that's a problem for hope. Because for us to have hope for the future, things need to last. I mean, what's the good of an eternity of a future with things falling apart more and more and more? Us always having to try to cobble things together. That's not hopeful. But that's not what we have as an inheritance. It's an unfading inheritance. See, the hope of Jesus, the hope of the kingdom of God, breathes fresh air into this idea of entropy because, because what he's telling us is that our future is secure. Heaven itself will not fade. It will not deteriorate. It won't become chaotic or disordered. It will be a finely tuned, perfectly governed system and we will be in it. We also will not fall apart, praise God. It will endure, we will endure. And the perfectness of what God has made, we will be able to enjoy it forever. So listen, I... I know some of this gets a bit, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, heady, metaphysical, like it's kind of up there in, in the clouds, but, but there's real practical importance here. So let me ask you this question. I think this is really what Peter is getting at. On difficult days, what gives you hope? I think, that's, I think that's what he's talking about here. What gives you hope? He wants to bring hope to the church on days when everything seems to be perishing, when sin is wreaking havoc on our family, when the good things in our lives are fading. And so the question is, what kind of hope do we hold on to on days like that? Is it the imperishable, undefiled, unfading glories of heaven? Or is it something else? Something of the world that's destined to die, destined to lead us astray. That's, that's really what Peter is getting at here. That there is only one living hope, but there's a thousand other hopes out there that will ultimately die, that will ultimately lead us into disappointment, into discouragement. See, the only thing worse than having no hope is, is false hope. And the world's full of it. And it's really tough to tell the difference because there's a lot of things in this world that seem fairly hopeful, seem comforting. We know what they are, right? Things like money, relationships, achievement, 
holidays, alcohol, Netflix, creative expression, hobbies, all of these things are fairly hopeful. We look forward to them at the end of the day. They seem to bring good into our lives. But I think we also know that they can be deceptive. I mean, any one of those things can turn on us very quickly. Right? That glass of wine, that, that was a comfort, that was enjoyable, can very easily become something that we depend on, that we're enslaved to. That job that was so encouraging, so it gives us such purpose, it can consume us. All of these things in the world that, that for the moment seem to be really encouraging and, and hopeful, if that's all we have, they all lead us into a place where we, we really are hopeless. We're in a worse place than when we began. And the challenge, the real challenge for us is to be able to tell the difference and to not be deceived. But thankfully, what our text tells us in this last verse is it's not about us. It's not up to our strength. So here's the last verse, speaking about us and our inheritance. Verse 5, us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think it'd be really good for some of us to hear this, that this whole thing that we're talking about, all of this hope, all of these blessings, it all is accomplished by the power of God. Last week in verse 1, we saw that he is the one who elected us from before the beginning of the world. Today in verse 3, we see that he caused us to be born again. And then we see in verse 5 that he is guarding our inheritance until it is ready to be revealed. It's all him. It's by his power. It's by his strength, by his grace. We see this over and over again in the New Testament. Here's Philippians 1.6, which says, Wondrously, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, he began it, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, there are many of us, I think, today that are struggling with, with hope, with needing hope for ourselves, for people in our family, for situations that we can't control, people we can't control. What Peter is telling us is that in those kinds of situations, you need to go back to the source. Because if you notice, in the timeline, everything is connected. It's all rooted in the mercy of God. In the cross of Jesus, right? That's what, that's what Peter is saying. Let's put it up one more time. He's saying that because all of this has happened in the past, you now have a living hope right now, and you can expect all of that hope to endure into the future when our inheritance will be fully revealed. Do you see how different this is than how we usually approach issues of discouragement? When we, when we need hope and we're feeling down, most of the time, what do we do? We, we tend to think more and more about our circumstances try to figure out how to, how to make things better. And the challenge is a lot of the times we don't have the power to make things better. So that means we look around us and we think, man, I, man that person's never going to change. That circumstance is never going to change. I'm probably never going to change. And if that's the case, when I look to the future, it all seems hopeless still. If it won't change now, why is it going to get better next week or in a month or in a year? And, and we, we slide into sort of this this chasm of despair, thinking, when is anything ever going to get better? Where is the hope? But notice that's not what Peter says to do. Peter says, begin, begin not with your circumstances or, or, or just your, your present environment. Begin with God. Begin with his power. Begin with his character and start with what he's already done to save you. Remind yourself that if you're a Christian, you have You've been made alive in Christ by his power, by his strength. He loves you. He's for you. Jesus already went to the cross and dealt with the essential problem of your life. That's already all been accomplished. 
and then follow those promises, follow the link of God's mercy and God's grace into the future, into, into all of the inheritance that will come through, in heaven, the eternity that lies before us. When we think that way, we will realize that we do actually have hope. We have it right now. We have it for tomorrow. That the power that is within us that changed us from death to life can definitely work on whatever else is going on in us. And the same thing for the people in our lives. We have a living hope, not rooted in us, not rooted in our circumstances, but in God himself. To experience this hope, though, to feel it, because that's, that's sometimes the challenge. We know it's true, but to actually feel the hope, what we need to do is fill our minds and our hearts with these truths. We need to get in the habit of rejecting the lies, the deception of the world. Not that we just isolate ourselves, don't deal with anything, but that we look at everything through this lens, praying in faith, acting in righteousness, seeking to be faithful. We are in exile. We are longing for home. It is going to be difficult. But our hope is not dead. It's alive because Jesus is alive. And to the extent that we know that and we apply it to our lives, we will be encouraged on this day. So let me pray that for us. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would bring hope into all the situations represented here in this room, in the rest of our church. Lord Jesus, there's so many things that are outside of our control, so many situations where it just feels like there is no hope, and yet, and yet we see so clearly that as you have begun a good work in us, you will carry us through. Lord Jesus, that you are actually working in every situation for our good. We have been brought from death to life by your power. We can claim the cross. We know the hope that we have on the day of judgment, so I pray that all of this all of this would, would not only remind us of the hope that we have, but Lord, that we would experience it anew. I, I really pray, Lord, for those that are struggling here amongst us. Would you help us? Help us to walk in this. Help us to, to breathe in the, the spiritual life that you've given us. And I pray too, Lord, for those that are here joining us who don't have faith. I, I pray that all this would just be very compelling. I pray, Lord, you'd be drawing them to, to contemplate, to consider this gift that you have for each, each human being. And Lord, that they would come to faith. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we are not on our own. We have not been left to our own devices. Lord, you are with us. You've done everything we need for hope and you promise us more in the future. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.